Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. There has been a split, you might have heard, in the Pacific Islands Forum recently after five Micronesian nations announced they'd quit the grouping in protest against their preferred candidate being overlooked for the top leadership role. Uh, Former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, Henry Puna, narrowly won election for the position of Secretary General. But there's a feeling this went against a convention of rotating leadership between representatives of the three main regional groupings of Micronesia, Melanesia and Polynesia. The rift raises questions about the future of the Pacific's peak regional body and the nature of efforts to address big issues like climate change in a way that can fully encompass the diversity of perspectives and priorities of Pacific Island nations. Katerina Tiawa is an Associate Professor in Pacific Studies at ANU and to help us better understand these dynamics she joins us on the line. Katerina, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. No worries. Thanks for having me. And so before we get to the split, can you perhaps give us a a brief sense of what the Pacific Islands Forum is and its function for the region and I I guess globally as well? Yeah, so the Pacific Islands Forum um, is the peak political intergovernmental body of of the Pacific. So it brings together... 17 nations um, and territories in one united voice to have a say on critical political, social and economic uh, issues facing the region. So it was created, I believe, in 1970 and they had their first meeting in 1971 and at the time it was primarily focused on the South Pacific. It was the South Pacific Islands Forum and then in 1999 it was changed to the Pacific Islands Forum in order to uh, be more inclusive of the voices um, of the um, parties in in the central and northern and western, uh, northwestern part of the Pacific. So it is quite a critical um, body in that it actually um, allows for Pacific countries to talk frankly with each other. There's a lot of um, efforts to build consensus for the whole region around critical issues, like you mentioned, climate change, um, um, critical health issues, anything facing their uh, oceanic and environment. Um, And it's become um, quite important, I suppose, at the global level as well, because when 17 countries can agree on on critical issues, their voices then get amplified on the global stage. So um, it is a very, very important political space for Pacific Island countries, but it's also a space where there's constantly this negotiation around both the similarities and differences between the sub-regions and the individual states um, involved in the forum. So it's complex, but it is absolutely critical at the regional and global level. Yeah, and I know that, you know, part of the Paris Agreement, the Pacific Island nations were absolutely critical in raising ambition there for what the globe can achieve. So there's, there's a, you know, at least one forum where they, um, speaking in one voice, was absolutely important to, to that. Mm. But I wonder then if, um, you know, that the forum brings together a diversity of views, as you say, and uh, my understanding is that it's the, the countries in the north part of the Pacific, um, the Micronesian nations that have walked away here 
here, Palau, the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, Kiribati, Nauru. Um, why did they walk away specifically, I guess? And, you know, does it indicate that the bringing together has, you know, has left some nations marginalised in that forum over these decades? Yes. So they, they walked away, the five countries uh, walked away because they had an understanding with um, the other leaders that the leadership, the secretary general position would rotate between Melanesia, Micronesia and Polynesia. The previous secretary general was from Papua New Guinea, Dame Meg Taylor, and the one before that was um, Polynesian. So um, Micronesia definitely felt like it was time for their candidate um, uh to be supported, and they had what they called a gentleman's agreement, which is a an informal uh, oral agreement between uh, the leaders that Micronesia's turn would be up. And then when it t- came time for um, leadership uh, uh, candidates to be put forward um, and elected, um, other countries put forward, put forward their own candidates, and the Micronesian candidate, which was Gerald Zakios from the Marshall Islands, lost um, uh, out to Henry Puna from the Cook Islands by one vote. So it seems as if the five Micronesian nations supported their candidate, as well as three other nations from Melanesia, and that the Polynesian bloc voted, uh, plus Fiji, voted with each other and supported um, Henry Puna. So this um, offended the Micronesian countries, partly because uh, the way in which things normally operate at the Pacific Islands Forum is according to what um, um, leaders and scholars and many people on the ground for decades have been calling the Pacific Way which is, even if it's not written down, um, agreements that are... uh that come through by consensus based on kinship between the islands in the Pacific are honoured. And when this particular agreement uh, wasn't honoured, Micronesia decided maybe they're not so valued within the forum. So Palau was the first country to formally um, walk out. Um, They pulled uh, their representative um, from Fiji and they said that's it. And then the Micronesian uh, president signed an agreement saying, yes, they, um, they agree they will also, over the next year, uh, formally pull out of the forum. So this is important because micro essentially means small. And if we think historically back to how these sub-regions were formed in the, in the first place, and they are colonial constructs, they are European constructs, of the Pacific, um, there, there are some particular differences and hierarchies between these subregions. So Micronesia, meaning small islands, is often marginalized in um, regional discourse, um, and there's this idea that they're, they're the smallest and pot- potentially they don't matter as much as the many islands in Polynesia. That's literally what poly means, is, is many islands or the larger, often more resource-rich islands of Melanesia in the southwestern Pacific. Um, but Mela means, uh, refers to black islanders. So the, these different framings of the subregions in the Pacific have different um, 
discursive, political and social effects because they are unequal. Many islands is not the same as saying black islands, which is not the same as saying small islands. They all have um, these powerful uh, connotations associated with them. And even though we can say, oh, that's just, you know, that's just language, that's just semantics, um, these terms have had particular effects historically on the ways in which voices across the Pacific are heard or not heard. Some voices are much louder than others, and some countries are valued more than others. So Micronesia, you know, decided perhaps they're not valued as much, even though on the global stage, as you say, with respect to things like climate change, um, the Micronesian countries have been incredibly effective at raising these issues, amplifying these issues, and calling for action. So countries as small as Nauru have, have had um, been very powerful voices for decades calling for action on climate change. Same with Palau, same with the Marshall Islands. All, all the countries, Kiribati um, has led this for many uh, um, years calling for action and I guess um, they believed you know they ought to be valued in the same way within internally within the forum so yeah. Um, yeah, it's so great to have that level of nuance that um, that you know is, is generally very much lacking in the coverage, at least we, we get from Australia about these types of dynamics um, in in the Pacific region. I should remind listeners we're speaking with Katerina Tiawa, an associate professor in Pacific Studies at ANU, and we're talking all about the split in the Pacific Islands Forum after a collective of, of um, nations from Micronesia announced their intention to quit the forum. And I mean, we, we've mentioned climate change as a really significant issue for all those um, sort of people in the region. But is this split likely to have implications for the extent to which they can, I suppose, collectively advance these type of interests? And and I guess as an extension of that, what might it mean for the the more specific interests of those um, people of Micronesia and the extent to which they can, you know, really be heard both in the region and on the global stage? I do think the Micronesian bloc uh, is uh, effective regardless um, of whether or not they're part of the forum um, in in calling for action on these issues. So they are always effective in the UN, small island developing state forums, etc. And I think the other thing we have to remember is that regionalism, whether we're talking about political, social or economic regionalism, happens at all levels, not just at the level of the forum. So there are united voices across Micronesia, across Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia still calling for action on climate change, still hiding, highlighting issues facing uh, the one blue Pacific Ocean, regardless of whether or not the forum at that political level is, mm. is united. So, so regionalism in the Pacific goes beyond just formal political regionalism. The kinship is still there, the informal ties are still there, and there are all also a lot of uh, community organizations that are networked and organized and will still call for action on many of these issues. So yes, it will be a bit of an uncomfortable period. And yes, there will be a lot of talanoa, which means a lot of conversation and discussions going on between the official leaders. But regardless of that, kinship, regionalism, the networks that support these critical issues will continue at other levels across Oceania. 
You know, I've got so many quick questions in the time we've got left, um, Katerina, but I wonder, um, you know, one article I read in The Guardian on this um, talked about, you know, the age of Zoom and this idea that, um, even, you know, even in the Pacific where cases of COVID have been low, the face-to-face time has been lacking in, you know, many forums for obvious reasons. Um, has that affected uh, uh, the kind of ability to discuss and agree and, and those sorts of things? And I guess... Um, um, uh, in, in addition to that, are we likely to see uh, nations in, in Micronesia, the ones we spoke about, you know, turning to kind of um, bigger um, um, partners like the United States, like China, like Australia um, uh, with this? I know it's early days, but with this kind of change happening at the Pacific Island Forum level. Mm-hmm. So on, on Zoom, I've had some discussions with my colleagues about this. Uh, there are advantages and there are disadvantages. We so, all know that, actually. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> we, we are all knowing of the Zoom advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantages are, it dis, sorry, disadvantages are obvious for the Pacific Islands Forum in that they can't be in the same space. They can't have casual conversations in the same way. But the advantages are the clarity... Uh, provided by Zoom in that perhaps there aren't those distractions of the more informal, casual context. So I almost feel like um, the digital platforms and Zoom perhaps gave clarity to Micronesia to make the decisions that they did because they weren't um, hanging out in a more informal way with their colleagues. So I think, you know, Positives and negatives, and sometimes the very focused format of the digital platform actually provides clarity for people. Um, and, and some of those kind of uh, obligations or responsibilities that they might have felt in a face-to-face context start to fade away slightly. Um, with respect to the bigger partners, Look, countries in the Pacific are always talking to other countries. There are a lot of, you know, bilateral relationships. The United States has a particular relationship uh, with three of these countries in the northern Pacific. That will continue. And, yes, the dynamics, the power dynamics, the geopolitical dynamics may shift. But I think what has happened in the forum is actually a wake-up call and really, really good for the region to think through some of these issues. And and what about for Australia? Does it have any implications for what Australia kind of um, should or or, or will do in in relation to its engagement with the region? Well, I think Australia is going to have to step up in the Northern Pacific. And I know it already had set up, um, you know, new... um, Uh, representatives on the ground uh, in the Northern Pacific, which actually surprised, uh, you know, people suddenly seeing Australia kind of pop up in Palau and FSM Mm. and and other places. So Australia has already been doing that, understanding that it it has um, influence in the South Pacific, but maybe it's not as strong uh, in the North Pacific. And in terms of its security and geopolitical interests, it does need to maintain those relationships across the whole of Oceania. So I think Australia will be asking questions of itself in terms of what it actually knows about the rest of the Pacific beyond Melanesia. 
Absolutely. Well, um, it's been so great to have your insights this morning on Triple R, Katerina. Thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having well, me. Let's do it again sometime. Um, Katerina Chiawa, uh, Associate Professor in Pacific Studies at the ANU, really um, connecting us with what's happening with the Pacific Islands Forum right now. And I, I guess we're looking to the future of, of what might happen now that there's been a split there with a third of the countries indicating they're going to walk away. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I want to start this conversation with a timestamp. Melbourne, 15th of February 2021. Just one new COVID case today. Atmospheric carbon dioxide, 413.81. And uh, it's yeah right on 20 past 11. And that means it's also time to say hello to Joe Chandler. And this is the kind of way that Joe introduces us to different aspects of her essay, which is published in the Griffith Review. It's called Tales from the Frontline. And it looks at the emotional impact of climate change. And she keeps bringing us back to that number, that atmospheric carbon dioxide number but also place and where she is. And Joe, it was a real pleasure reading your contribution to the Griffith Review. And I wonder, you know, what do those numbers mean to you? Why did you want to keep returning to them when you kind of took us to Antarctica and different periods of time, right back to Rachel Carson's day in the 60s and so on? Oh, good morning. Um, I guess those numbers... Um, I remember the first time I tracked those when I was I was putting together a book that I did um, called Feeling the Heat back in 2011. It was published, and I went through the exercise of looking at what the atmospheric carbon had been when I was born and when my children were born, and uh, tracking right through and and just sort of watching this cataclysmic relentless rise and I noticed um, actually in the recent Attenborough documentary they did a similar thing at the beginning of every sort of scene they did this you know when they were tracking back through his history there was this clicker that was sort of recording the atmospheric carbon and and it felt particularly um, powerful in the moment of COVID because of course and and in those chapters I also um, each of those little snapshots when I move through time in the essay, I also include the numbers for the cases uh, through the lockdown period that we were experiencing and, and internationally at the time. Um, and I guess what I kept seeing was that, you know, at least in Victoria, the numbers got better for a whole lot of, uh, you know, for a long time. And um, whereas those other numbers, that other set of numbers around atmospheric carbon just kept spiralling into the danger zone. And you make some really interesting kind of links and, and parallels in this essay between the sort of climate crisis and the, the COVID-19 crisis and your, um, at least sort of, you know, in the essay you're taking us to experiences you had um, sort of writing, sitting in your home, having Zoom interviews with, um, you know, very esteemed climate scientists and, and that sort of thing. How did the experience of, uh, I guess, lockdown and, and the pandemic um, influence or, or change at all your writing and, and perspective on um, on the climate crisis and I guess journalistically how, how you might cover that? Um, I guess the alternative title for this piece and 
um, maybe a better title would have been the climate COVID collision um, because that's really kind of what it was about. And um, like everybody, I had other plans for 2020 and I was supposed to, I had, um, I got a grant from the Walkleys under the Sean Dorn, uh, Sean Dorney Award, a legendary um, ABC Pacific reporter, um, to go to the Pacific to collect stories around climate justice and women particularly, the impacts on women through the Pacific of responding to and managing climate impacts now. So I had, you know, I was supposed to be off collecting those stories and, of course, like everyone, I was, you know, stuck in my house. And initially, I guess like everyone, I was distressed about the COVID (laughs) crisis, but... um, Largely at the time when it first broke out because I had been um, coming out of that hideous grief of Black Summer of the summer of 19 and 20, yeah. uh, I really felt that if nothing else, you know, if all that horror, there was a sense that um, it, there was a public understanding that this bloody thing is upon us. And, and I really felt that there was a chance of some really powerful momentum coming out of that summer kind of catching that wave of grief and saying we have to change, we have to act, we have to do things now. And then this pandemic came and kind of stole the march on us and and, and it felt initially like it had, you know, sort of sucked all of all the oxygen out of the room. <laughs> Probably not the right <laughs> metaphor for this thing, but it did feel like it had taken it had diverted us and it had taken stolen a lot of that energy around climate and and the attention and, and the urgency was, you know, sort of this other and more immediate threat was upon us and that was compelling us to respond. Um, but then I started seeing, in some ways, the more that you look at it, it's the, the COVID crisis is kind of like a parable of looking at humans respond to an emergency. And there were things that were kind of very exciting and fortifying in those early stages particularly and and certainly we've seen it in Victoria um, substantially where expertise is honoured and listened to you know we listen to exports like our lives depend on it you know and Mm. and so there was a it reminded me of um, I'm old enough to have covered the HIV crisis back in the day and back then you had epidemiologists and um, virologists Telling and you know they were at the forefront and they um, uh, they were powerfully shaped the way the public health response and the way that um, that uh, the whole situation was managed and Australia you know famously led the world in its response through the nineties uh, to HIV in its public health response and that was informed by expertise and by listening to and honouring that um, and it felt like that for COVID and I thought well. Could this be a lesson to us in terms of honouring science and, you know, restoring, I guess, the the place of science because climate scientists have been so demonised and marginalised and um, for so long and, uh, you know, this sort of uh, undermining of scientific expertise has been a powerful part of the, you know, the climate disinformation machine and here we were having a life lesson in why we should listen to people who know what they're talking about. Um, So that was one aspect of this climate COVID collision where I guess I could see parallels. And the the other one um, that was so powerful is, you know, the whole flatten the curve argument. 
And every time I see those COVID curves or saw them in those days, all I could see was the um, the RCP scenarios mm. of climate change response. It's the same argument. You take the pain now in order to you know reduce the pain later. That you can by acting hard and acting early ultimately reduce the the impacts of this thing. So it was sort of like a little lesson in in you know why we should listen to expertise and why we should act uh, in ways that may be against our immediate interests but ultimately are going to do us a whole lot of good. Yeah, and while um, the, the climate COVID collision might, you know, might have been the alternative um, name for your essay, Joe, mm. it, it, you know, it is called The Emotional Impact of Climate Change. And I wonder mm. if your exploration of this topic or your, the, the, the work you did in the lead up to writing the essay of really video conferencing with climate scientists from their home into your mm. home helped you tap into emotion and helped you share more with with scientists than maybe if you had have been able to to go to place did that have some bearing on on you know the, your research process have some bear on bearing on how you ended up coming at this topic possibly um i think the reason i think a couple of things have happened um, when i was interviewing scientists on climate you know 10 15 years ago uh we didn't talk a lot about how they felt about it, um, although it was always something that's interested me, the kind of burden of knowledge and how you sleep nights and plan a life when you know as a scientist um, in your heart of hearts where that is all going. And I guess I realised after a while that they did the same as you know journalists do when we're exposed to um, the realities of quite you know, very bleak and confronting realities and we somehow compartmentalise our experience and knowledge of those things and sort of tuck it away and live this double reality so that we can get on with our own lives. And um, this is something I've sort of poked around for a while. So when I was asked and sort of decided to try and explore this piece, I and knowing I would be doing all the interviews through Zoom... I mostly went to scientists I already had an established relationship with. Um, there are a couple of, one exception in that, um, Sophie, but the rest are all people that I've interviewed um, many, many times um, and I've spent time with. So Taz Van Omen, the Antarctic um, glaciologist. I mean, I've been with him in Antarctica twice. Um, I travelled to a really remote location called Lord Dome and dug out an ice ice cube, (laughs) ice core with him once. Um, So this was an opportunity because there is an established knowledge of their work, there's an established trust um, that I could take it deeper. And, And I think there's also something about where we are now in the climate emergency uh, that makes it more imperative to uh, go to that place and scientists are more willing to go there. Um, a few years ago, or uh, you know, scientists were very reluctant often to give up their scientific aura. Like they felt that if they began, a lot of them felt that, you know, all they had, what that was important for them to bring to the public discussion was their gravitas and their qualifications and their insights. And the fear was that if they sort of contaminated them with their feelings and their fears and their tears, that 
they would just become another activist and that they would not be taken seriously. Um, but James Hansen, the sort of, you know, granddaddy of of climate scientists, I mean, I think it was back in 2006 to 2007, thereabouts, he wrote an essay and published a paper, I think, in Scientific American or uh, in one of the journals and then a, a sort of a, a public version of it in Scientific American, basically calling out scientists to abandon their reticence and to scream loud and shout loud about what they knew to be true and what they were seeing. Um, and certainly you look at people like Kerry Hughes, who's in the essay, uh, the um, Irish climate scientist from the Barrier Reef Specialist. And, I mean, he's famous for the tweet that he put out after the first... Uh, bleaching event on um, the 2017 event where he put up a graph showing the red and um, amber and green zones of where the corals had been impacted and you saw this big red zone and he wrote in the tweet and then we wept um, and that sort of sounded around the world and, and he he tweets you know, with this broken, keening Irish heart <laughs> mm. um, and doesn't pull back. And again and again, we're seeing more of that. Joel Gerges, um writes these really powerful essays. Um, and, you know, she's a climate scientist who was at Melbourne, now at, at think at ANU. And she writes of her intense grief and, you know, sort of, you know, literally crying herself to sleep after presenting the data that she deals with. Yeah, I was just um, going to say, your, your piece reminded me of Giselle, uh, Joelle's writing on the topic and mm. we've, we've sort of spoken to her about, um, I guess, why she and why and how she felt the need to, um, I guess, be more upfront about her emotional response and, and challenges with, you know, working mm. so closely in this space. I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Jo Chandler, um, award-winning Melbourne-based journalist, um, all about her uh, essay in the latest Griffith Review called Tales from the Frontline, The Emotional Impact of climate change and I guess just on that um, I guess willingness of climate scientists to openly express emotion you make sort of interesting parallels with um, the kind of traditional journalistic trope of objectivity as as being sort of you know grounded in kind of the scientific method and of course there's a whole range of different approaches to journalism today but how do you kind of deal with that both as a practitioner and educator around reporting on issues such as climate change, which, as you say in the essay, we all have skin in the game. You know, this is a really serious existential issue for us all. How do you see the role of journalism in kind of harnessing emotion and what role does that play in informing us and, and helping us to feel the reality of the climate crisis? Mm. Look, there's, there's so much, you know, objectivity is a really short ambition, you know, for lots of reasons. I mean, I think for a lot of years, you know, journalists kind of hide behind that cloak and and yet it is impossible, really. Um, what's not impossible, though, is to pursue the truth of a story and that is really the imperative. You know, it, it, you know objectivity is a really difficult thing to um, realistically deliver. Mm. I mean, we're all human, we all have... Uh, you know, sort of, we bring our cultural story, we bring our background, we bring our prejudices to, we bring our limitations, our, you know, you know, our cognitive um, capacities to, to everything. But, but as journalists, I guess it's not that hard to say, 
I'm going to go after the truth here. And that is a process then of looking at the information that is presented to you, you know, as fully, as carefully, as scrupulously, and you apply all of the filters that you have to. I mean, are... Am I reading material which is um, uh, has validity, has currency, has it been peer-reviewed, has it been through the journal process? Is this person who is presenting themselves as an expert on this issue, you know, what are their credentials? Are they active in this area? How do they sit within the broader scope of the science? So you're interrogating the material that you use and you're interrogating the voices that you use. Um, and, you know, sort of, I guess, balance is, you know, an objectivity. It doesn't mean that you include the bullshit, you know. You've made a judgment. You've done the hard work. You have established that going down a particular path um, does not illuminate the issues. It's a distraction. It's a diversion. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny. You're not obliged to go there. You, you follow your nose into the story and you follow the expertise. Um, I mean, certainly if... if a piece of science emerges that seems to go counter, you know, say a piece of science emerged today that um, indicated that some large aspect of our understanding of, you know, the global climate system and how we think it now works, if it blew a hole in it in some way, and if that was published and presented by scientists with, um, you know, the credentials, the, you know, active area of uh, research in that, um, in that domain, of course that would be covered, you know, and, that, and we would be obliged to cover that. But if it's presented by, you know, a couple of individuals that have, you know, close ties to fossil fuel uh, uh, companies and they've not really published anything in the last 10 or 15 years and their area of expertise is not really relevant to the thing that they're talking about, then why would you go there? Yeah. So, and, um, and look, there's a lot of news around as well. There's a competing space for the kind of um, stories we yeah. cover. But I wonder with regards to, you know, your essay, you, 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 you write in there that uh, scientists reflect that the raw science is far scarier than the mainstream reporting of the science. And I wonder your reflections on that. Is that because there is a sense that the full picture is kind of doomsday, does turn people off, make them feel hopeless, or is it because of a lack of understanding? Or what do you think, why do you think that is, that the the science itself is just so much more stark and confronting them than the news of it that we read? I guess... It is and it isn't. So we have to be careful here because there is lots of nuance. And I'm thinking, you know, Michael Mann's got a new book out um, and, you know, Michael Mann, very eminent, you know, one of the most eminent international scientists and, you know, famous for the hockey stick back in the day, which the denialists sort of picked up and whacked him with. But um, but Michael Mann's got a new book out and, and he, him and other scientists are very concerned that doom is the new denial. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a real... Uh, there is a real concern here um, that for a while distraction was the new, new denial. So, you know, this, uh, it was all around, it's all about personal responsibility. It's about whether you have, you know, are you using a keep cup? You know, do you have you recycled your plastic? Um, and it was sort of personal shaming at some level. And we all got kind of caught up in that really, really got my goat because meanwhile, whilst we were sort of wagging our fingers at one another, the, you know, 100 companies that are producing 70% of the problem are kind of just cranking on with it and get unbothered un- un- by us. Um, so distraction, and un- I think, was a tactic for a while. And now there's a real 
um, element of doom. Oh, well, it's so far gone that we can't possibly fix it now. You know, we're just going to have to ride it out to the end. Um, and certainly the science is very confronting uh, in lots of areas as the models um, continue to be evolved and tweaked. We're seeing some really bad things that systems appear to be more sensitive in some areas than they hoped or appeared that they were a few years ago. You know, we're tracking faster down some of these scenarios than anybody wanted. That said, we also know how to fix it. You know, there are many powerful things that can be done. Um, And so as bleak as it is, it is not lost. You know, everything, and I think Taz Van Omen makes the point in the essay and, I mean, he, he works on ice. He sees how grim the situation is regarding ice sheet loss and what that will mean to sea levels. Um, but he's also basically saying everything that we do um, makes the problem less. It pushes the problem out. It gives us more room to manoeuvre. Um, so he is optimistic in that sense. And I guess that's what we need to be careful to cling to. But but on that question, though, that you, I'll try and be quick, but... I certainly feel there is a validity that for many years one of the consequences of the climate wars and the attacks on scientists and on journalists who were reporting the work of scientists was so brutal and damaging um, that we all stayed at the shallow end of the pool. We only generally mostly reflected on um, the areas of the greatest consensus and the areas where there was the most certainty. So that was tended to be the least, um, you know, sort of the most conservative readings. But what that means is that we're not looking at the whole picture. You actually need to understand the mid-level risks and the high-level risks that may be less probable but really, really bad if they happen. It's, it's like when you go to the doctor and they tell you, yes, you're going into surgery for a minor cataract or something, but there is a 0.1% chance that you're never going to wake up. Um, and you need to be aware of all of those risks in order to make a decision. But in many ways, as a society, we have not been um, made aware of the true sort of range of risks that we are facing with this emergency. Yeah, and it, it, it's, I mean, you know, reading your piece, it, it's very clear and, you know, quite alarming uh, perhaps for, you know, those who aren't sort of reading a lot in this space and, and you know, it's definitely to me very confronting in terms of just, um, you know, the fact that things are, are worse than a lot of the reports we're receiving might suggest they are. But based on sort of the, the scientists you've spoken to and from your work in this space as well, what's your kind of... I mean, what kind of hope do you have that we are starting to really um, sort of move on this issue? Obviously, uh, you know, businesses have, have um, you know, at long last started to really move towards kind of um, uh, clean energy and, and energy transition and that sort of thing. We've got um, countries such as China and, and Japan moving towards mid-century zero, zero, uh, zero emissions targets and obviously the US rejoining the Paris Accord as well. I mean, are those things that give you much hope or are there much more sort of substantial and other things that need to happen as well to really get us moving um, towards, you know, fully addressing climate change in the way that we really should be? Um, I think it, it, certainly we're in a situation now, things are so bad and, and are upon us that, you know, insurance is going to drive the response to this, you know, um, and banks and, you know, there is a 
recognition now within, you know, within companies of stranded assets. You know, they people who are sit on those boards now know whether they like it or not, whether they understand the science or not. And I hate, I don't use the term belief. I don't think that's appropriate. Mm. You either understand the science or you don't. You don't, you know, believing in the science is kind of a distraction. Um, but even the sort of the, the blokes, and they still mostly are blokes, on boards are now being persuaded that whether you understand the science or not, you are going to be responsible. And, you know, you have fiduciary duties now as a, as a board member to recognise the risk of stranded assets if you do not respond to this in an appropriate way. So the market's responding. I think Biden's, you know, going to make it, you know, it clearly is signalling that things are going to change. The Australian government, of course, is still dragging its heels, but um, we're going to be dragged there. Uh, there is, you know, a kind of an inevitability now about where the systems are going to have to go. Obviously, if we, you know, sort of went, if there were government policies in place that um, uh, assisted in that, we'd be getting there a whole lot yeah. faster. So it does feel like we've still got these blockages in the system that you just want to, you know, push them out of the way. And I guess that's where hope comes in, that, Hope, you know, I, I, there's that, the, the Rebecca Solnit um, quote, you know, Hope in the Dark, where she talks about, you know, hope is not a lottery ticket that you cling to when you sit on the sofa. It's the axe with which you bang down the door in an emergency. Mm. So hope is weaponized now. Hope means that you have to, you know, get active and, um, you know, make your voice heard, push for things to change, you know, with your cons consumption, with your banking, with your super, with your insurance, you know, with your feet, with your body, you know, whatever it is that you, I, you know, I'm, I, I fully subscribe now to weaponize hope. <laughs> um, and, um, and I think that's, and it, Leslie Head um, in her work, and she's also quoted in this piece, and she's a social scientist who works around, around uh, climate and and she talks about a lot about the difference between sort of hope and optimism and and you can sometimes not be optimistic about where we're going but to be hopeful that things can change and not in a kind of a Alice in Wonderland or not Alice in Wonderland so it's not a just sort of a you know fairy tale hope some people um, call it sort of Pollyanna you know and and I just think Pollyanna that's, that's good yeah the but Pollyanna I think hope, that's the one, yeah. you wouldn't know how yeah. much time I spend um, sort of looking at the difference between positivity, optimism and hope and I've settled on hope yes. and I think that was the part of your essay and we're almost out of time but um, the part of your essay that really spoke to me, this idea of practising hope or hope as practice and I actually didn't realise that I actually do that and I think it's not, you know, not just because of the pandemic but, you know, I've worked, um, people know me, um, work a long time in, in climate and I think that... Um, hope as practice um, means that it doesn't dominate your every day but it's part of your every day somehow and um, it made me think you know just you were speaking then around investors and banks and insurers and so forth like we are now in the bounds of this, the time scale of such things like 30 years is the length of a mortgage 30 years is the length of when you know insurers will be looking at your your property or life insurance and those sorts of things it is the the scope of when superannuation is invested on your behalf and so forth so we are in a different world now I guess with regards to who's taking these seriously these, these things seriously and, and pushing them forth but I wonder you know um, just really briefly like how do you practice hope now that I've you know raised it from your essay um, I, 
in all, you know, I try and have it influence all my little decisions. I um, and and you know, I sort of went through the part of things. One of the things I did in lockdown was to sort of you know move all my banking and <laughs> mortgage and things and very good use and, of time. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of lobbying with my super fund and others and trying to make some changes there. I've really been thinking about where is the best place to position myself. Um, you know, do I, you know, for example, um, I do a lot of work in the Pacific and I'm still hoping that at some point in the next year or two I will get back to, you know, collecting those stories around climate justice um, in places like Papua New Guinea. But if, for example, I attended a climate protest here and managed to get myself arrested, I wouldn't be able to go to Papua New Guinea. So what is the most useful way for me to continue to to work? You know, do I, and as a person, as an individual and as a professional, you know, where can I basically swing my weight most usefully? And um, I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, but I'll, I think that's going to be the next important um, sort of, you know, sort of set of decisions to be made. And, and it is really urgent. The other night I moderated the, an online forum for the National Climate Emergency Summit that's been um, Reset 21 that they've been running in Melbourne the last two weeks. And we had the former UK chief scientist, Sir, Professor Sir David King, zoom in. And he's basically saying it's 2030 or bust. You know, it's not 2050, it's mm. 2030. And unless we're sticking mirrors right across the top of the Arctic to try and bounce some of that stuff back, um, you know, it's beyond the tipping point and, it's, and we're cooked, you know. So, so maybe some of these sort of, you know, ruminations and thinking I've still got another few years to make some decisions like all of us, you know, maybe that luxury is not there. And we can do it, 2030 people. Thank you, Joe. Um, it's really great to have you back on, on the grapevine on 3 R, And, um, yeah, and hopefully people will, will grab your latest essay in the Griffith and, um, and have a read. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.